Welcome to another special edition of Anesthesia Stat, the Stanford Anesthesia Tutorial Podcast. Back again with me is, again, our very special guest, Chief Hot, one of the Chief Hodaps, Chief Joe Hodap, MD. He's here again. He's able to spend a lot of his precious time with us today. This is the second podcast that we're recording today. So shout out to Joe. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled, Derek. I was going to make some joke about how we were recording this on separate days, but now, uh, you know, now I can't do that <laughs> oh, anymore. Oh, sorry. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all right. It's a, I think we've got something good for you guys today. We're going to kind of talk off the cuff a little bit about yeah. um, doing emergent airways out of the operating room. And for our CA1s at Stanford, we did a little um, uh, PowerPoint slide deck on this already, but I think it'd be nice to review this concept so that you can listen to this podcast the night before you carry the airway pager for the first time. Yeah, uh, I think this is just such an important topic because I remember when we were first taking calls, CA1s, this was my most anxiety-provoking thing, that someone pages the pager or someone calls the phone and goes, we have an airway for you, and having no idea what to do. But I think the reassuring part is that when you are a CA1 and we're just starting out, and even now, the attending is always very available and is going to be very present and kind of help guide the process of what you're going to do. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, one of the other things is even though our CA1s are only three, three and a half weeks in, they're already some of the most experienced airway yes. providers <laughs> in the hospital, which is, it, you know, it's hard to believe that. And, you know, those of you who are listening right now may be laughing at that, but in all reality, within a couple weeks, you guys are going to be the best that there is out there. So um, have confidence in the skills that you're developing. Yeah, that's a really good point because now that you're starting your anesthesia rotation, you may be intubating every single day. And uh, compared to other people who may be intubating, they may not get to intubate more than, I would say, once every two weeks, maybe once a month, something like that. So already in this brief month, you're probably already one of the more experienced airway uh, people to handle the airway that are out there. Couldn't agree more. Actually, a fun, funny kind of side story with that, Derek. When I was a CA1, I think like three or four months in, uh, I was helping with an intubation in the ICU, and the fellow was super excited and wanted to do the intubation. Uh-huh. Um, so we, we set everything up, and, and we're ready to proceed. And after we induce, I look over and realize the fellow was holding the laryngoscope in his right hand. So I, I, I just kind of the, the code whisperer in the background said, hey, switch it to the other hand. <laughs> so you really truly are, uh, you know, the safest hands uh, for doing these types of procedures very early on in your career. Yeah, you'll, you'll get the opportunity to see airways that are performed by other providers or people from other specialties. And you'll quickly find that you actually know a lot more about the airway than you think you do. Yeah. So maybe a good place to start with is uh, just talking about like, what do you first think through when you get that call? You get a page, it says code blue, or you get a page and it says urgent airway um, in the MICU we need you to come stat. What do you, what are your, what's going through your mind? Yeah. So the first thing I think that is most important for me is how much time do I have? So if I get a page and it says airway, um, and that makes me think that there's time to call the page back, see what's going on, see how much time that I have and actually have time to formulate a plan. Now that is a little bit different than a page that I get that says emergent airway or a page that I get that says code blue. 
That means that there really isn't any time to plan. You kind of just have to show up. And at Stanford, um, at least, the anesthesia techs are really good about bringing whatever airway equipment that you need. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, that means show up as quickly as possible, hope that everything you need is there, and kind of figure things out on the fly. But I would mm-hmm. say that in that case, if you're intubating during a code blue, the patient has already lost their heart rate. And so, you know, this is kind of a last-ditch effort to try and resuscitate them. Yeah. Um, so to me, it's, yeah, it's nice to get the airway in. But to me, it's the worst case thing has already happened. So you're just there try, just to try and secure an airway. So exactly. it's not, to me, that's almost less pressure than in a scenario where you have to secure the airway before you go down that road of the patient actually coding. Yeah. And, you know, some of your most challenging airways are going to be when the patient is coding. Um, the reality is it's hard to place an endotracheal tube when a patient's having chest compressions done. But just conceptualizing that, hey, this patient has already experienced a catastrophic life-ending event, and anything you do at this point just has the potential of reversing that. Yeah. So just have faith that, you know, you putting your best foot forward and trying to uh, help in the resuscitation of the patient is really just the best that you can do. Um, so going, going back to the scenario of, let's say it's a page and they say, we have a, a patient who's in hypoxic respiratory failure mm-hmm. in the MICU and they're on 15 liters non-rebreather. Um, we think we're going to need to intubate. What, what are you thinking when you get that page? So what I'm thinking is that, uh, I, I would ask the person who paged me more about their vital signs, how stable are they from their perspective? What are they satting at? It's different if they're on 15 liters non-rebreather and they're satting at 85%. That's a little more worrisome to me than they're on 15 liters non-rebreather, they're satting 99%, they're pretty awake and aware and they're protecting their own airway. That second scenario makes me think that I have more time to look up the patient, look up what comorbidities may uh, prevent a smooth airway um, access Um, and then just kind of look to see if they have any previous airway notes. It's a little different if they say 15 liters, 85%. In that case, I would kind of ask them if they have considered escalating any kind of non-invasive treatment. Have they tried BiPAP? Is there a contraindication to trying BiPAP? Have they tried high flow? What are their plans from there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, to Derek's point, what what you're trying to obtain with that information is a couple things. You, one, have to go up, if you have to instrument the airway, you want to be able to safely induce and intubate the patient. So having a sense of what their cardiovascular status is, is super, super helpful. And also just getting a sense of to what degree uh, you've already escalated their oxygen or ventilatory support and sort of are we reaching the ceiling here where we're going to run out of time and this is going to be a very difficult situation? Or is this a scenario where we have time, let's, let's slow down, let's take the next steps, we'll evaluate, um, you know, before, before just sort of rushing up and pushing medications, you know? Yeah, and it's always a good option if you're able to talk to someone on the other end, ask them what the indication for intubation is, because there are so many, right? 
You could have hypoxic respiratory failure. You could have someone going to florid pulmonary edema. It could be decompensated heart failure. You could have bleeding in the airway. You could have someone who has uncontrolled hematemesis. You could have someone who's obtunded and can't protect their airways. I mean, there's just so many indications for intubation. I think one really quick way to help you triage how emergent it is and kind of what to expect is what do you think the indication for intubation is? Totally agree. So let's say that, you know, you get this page, you've called the um, consulting provider back and you're walking uh, towards the MICU. Now you, you walk into the patient's room. What are the, what are the things you're looking at, Derek, or what are, what are you thinking about as you step into the room um, to try to set yourself up for success with uh, inducing and intubating the patient? Of course. And I, there's a lot of things I think you can just get just from looking at the patient without even talking to the patient, without doing anything. Is the patient zonked out? Is the patient basically unconscious, unresponsive? Is the patient sitting up, communicating clearly? What's their mental status? Are they aware, are they aware of what's going on? Are they hunched over? Are they struggling to breathe? Um, are they breathing quite comfortably? So I'll kind of, it's very easy just to actually look at that from outside the door even, just to look at what the patient is, uh, to let you know how much time you have. Is the patient actively throwing up? Are they going to be an aspiration risk? Is that something that you should be worried about? Mm-hmm. And then the next thing after that, um, if they are not hooked up to monitors, which has definitely been the case a couple times when they say they have an emergent airway, um, just to make sure that we have a recent set of vitals and they are hooked up to the monitors. Um, and it's always good to talk with the nurse about, you know, what their concerns are, kind of get a brief synopsis about the overall clinical course of the patient. Since the nurse presumably has been with the patient the entire day, you can get really good information from the nurse. Mm-hmm. After all of that, if you kind of think that you have a little bit of time, I always think it's nice to kind of take a look in the chart, almost similar to how you would look up a patient for uh, surgery or anesthesia the next day if you do have time. Look up their, past, their medical history. Why do they need to be intubated? And importantly, if they have any previous airway notes. If they have a previous airway note that says MAC3, grade one view, easy airway, easy back mask, that already takes a load, a big load off. And I, I this, the situation is a lot less stressful just because I know they've had an easy airway in the past. Yeah, yeah. Along those lines too, you know, if, if you see a note that says that they were a complex or difficult airway, you might be more hesitant to proceed with induction until you have all of the equipment you might need in the room, like having a difficult airway cart, maybe even considering having ENT available, these sorts of things. Um, But as Derek said, it's always a balance of how much time do you have, which truly the eyeball test is one of the best tests. You can get the vital signs and a sense of if the patient is awake and alert, um, or not very quickly. Um, and that assessment in and of itself is enough usually to tell you if you have enough time to, to make the next steps. Exactly, exactly. It, there's a big difference from someone who's sitting up and breathing comfortably and talking to someone. And this happened to me at Valley actually uh, just a couple weeks ago. We had just had shift change and uh, a call for an airway. Anesthesia stat actually was called. Um, to the ICU and I walk in the room and the guy is sitting up and he's just vomiting blood all over the place. And so in that situation, we want to get the tube in and secure the airway a little sooner than later before he starts to aspirate a lot of this blood. So in that Mm -hmm. situation, even before knowing anything, I knew absolutely nothing about the patient. I just ran up there, 
saw him vomiting blood and knew that we had to act a little earlier rather than later, which is oftentimes the case. Unfortunately, sometimes you just don't have the time that you would need to just set up and make sure everything is adequately planned out. You just Absolutely. have to go, go, go. Absolutely. So, so let's say that in whatever scenario you are, the decision is made that you do have to proceed with intubating. Um, one thing I think is really important when, especially when you're in an unfamiliar scenario for the first time is to do whatever you need to do to make it familiar and understandable. So what I mean by that is for me in the OR, every day when I set up my, my OR, I go through the MS maids mnemonic. Hmm. I always do that every day and that's very familiar for me. So when I'm in the ICU or maybe even on the floor where you have even fewer resources and you're called for an emergent airway, um, step into the room, assess the situation and use those familiar sort of techniques that you already employ to make this difficult, challenging new scenario much more familiar. Um, so thinking that through, MS maids for a difficult airway, can we, or sorry, for an emergent airway, mm -hmm. um, maybe we can just kind of talk through that together and, um, you know, see what you think. So what do you think for machine? Yeah, machine is, you, I mean, you definitely want to make sure um, everything is set up. Like you have, if you're going to intubate a patient, you want a, a way for the patient to be ventilated after they're intubated. I mean, they're obviously not going to be bag masked the entire time, hopefully. Hopefully you're in a, an area where there can be some ventilate, ventilatory support. So assuming that you do have time, I always do like to make sure the RT is there at the bedside with a ventilator with the equipment that they need to secure the tube and connect the patient to the ventilator and the ventilator just turned on and ready to go. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, the RT is one of the more experienced staff at seeing what it is to take care of an intubated patient. Mm -hmm. So I think having them at the bedside is already a really valuable resource in terms of making sure the tube is in the right place that you're set up for success as well. So when I think of machine, I do think of um, the, machine in terms of the ventilator at bedside yeah. yeah and in a scenario where maybe the situation is more emergent and and the ventilator is not available or the rt is on the way but not there yet you know really the bare minimum that you definitely want to have is one an oxygen source and two a way to ventilate the patient like yeah. derek was saying so having a bag valve mask available in ambu bag is the like proprietary name uh with an oxygen source is at as at the bare minimum what you would need to intubate and be able to successfully ventilate and oxygenate for the patient while you're waiting for these support systems. yeah i mean just like in the morning you you check to see if there is oxygen going to your machine it's just as important to check for oxygen an oxygen source i mean i've heard of so many bad stories where someone is getting transported from the ICU or to the ICU, uh, the bag mask is hooked up to an oxygen tank, and they didn't check to see if the oxygen tank actually had any oxygen in it visually, and they ran out of oxygen in the elevator. So I think it's always a good practice, not only just to check to see if the machine is there and if the RT is there, but to actually visually look at the gauge on the oxygen tank and yeah. uh, just make sure that there's oxygen in there. The last thing you wanna do is ask someone, oh, is this oxygen tank full? 
someone not look at it and say, yeah, it's a new one. I just brought it in. And when you have the airway and you think you're in the clear, there's actually no oxygen in the room whatsoever. Yeah. Um, so the second one is S for suction. Um, a lot of out of OR airways, your suction is crucial and to the point where you might even set up two suctions in advance. Like for Derek's airway at Valley, <laughs> you know, a couple weeks ago, um, having two suctions available, if you can, would be ideal because you, you expect a uh, complicated, uh, poor visibility, uh, soiled airway. So it's nice to just have that readily available. Um, and then M is for monitors. So like Derek said, sometimes you walk into a scenario where you get the call and the patient's not even on the monitors, but right away you should be putting the patient on the monitors and as you're preparing, just like you would for an induction, uh, you want to be cycling your blood pressure Q1 minute on a non-invasive. Um, if you have an arterial line, that's great, but you know, on, honestly, not that likely um, in these scenarios. And then you want to have your pulse ox uh, tone turned on so that you can yes. hear what's going on. Um, there's nothing more um, like scary than not being able to hear the pulse ox when you're intubating a patient so make sure those are on yeah and i think moving along with this point this does seem like a lot of stuff just to get prepared all on your own and it is it absolutely is but the good news is that uh if someone was calling you about an airway chances are when you get up to the room there's going to be plenty of other people just scrambling around trying to help the patient uh, alongside with the bedside nurse, there could be RT, there could be the charge nurse there, there could be any number of other helping hands. And the nice thing is, when you run through this checklist yourself, you can delegate some of these tasks and use your resources. I wouldn't be shy about speaking up, especially if there was a another pair of hands in the room. Mm -hmm. Just ask them to hook up the patient to the monitors while you're doing something else. You don't necessarily have to go step by step by yourself doing this by yourself. There's Absolutely. always going to be helping hands, and it's just as important not only to make sure you have the resources available to do this airway, but make sure that you're utilizing all of the resources in terms of people that you have around you that can help you do some of these tasks. Yeah, absolutely. Like along those lines, um, you know, if you're doing an intubation on the floor or something, you can send someone to get the airway box. You yes. can, uh, you know, have someone call the anesthesia techs, you know, um, to get all the airway equipment that you need. So doing these delegating tasks is really important. Um, I think in, in anesthesia, we're, we're sort of trained to be independent and to do a lot of things on our own. But this is a scenario where you really want to take control of the room and delegate the tasks so that things can be done more efficiently. Exactly. And just bringing back the point to your suction and back to my previous an anecdote, when that patient was vomiting blood, yeah. the first thing I remember asking for was, could I have two sources of suction? Yeah. And you're exactly right. We stuck both the hours in that patient's mouth, tried to suck out as much blood as we could before we induced and went and got the tube. Yeah. So again, that was another example, I would say, about using the resources that we had, using other people in the room to help us get stuff. Mm -hmm. And I had the RT held one of the hours, and I jammed another one of the hours in that mouth as well. Um, but moving on with our mnemonic, the next thing uh, would be airway. And so I would say for the majority of our emergent or urgent airways, we go in with video first, unless there is some contraindication to doing so. 
one of the first things that comes to my mind is that if there's active bleeding or there's so many secretions or something that is at risk of covering the camera, there might be some legitimacy in trying to DL first um, and taking a look with the DL rather than the video just in case you do feel like the video scope is going to be occluded by whatever blood or secretion that you find. But just because there have been multiple studies that show that video laryngoscopy leads to greater first pass success than with DL, at least at Stanford, if it's going to be an urgent airway, I don't think there's really any place for pride or arrogance or machismo and saying, oh, I'm going to break out my Miller 3 and we're just going to straight blade this airway <laughs> and I'm just going to show everybody that I can intubate with a straight blade. It's really not a time for pride. I would say, which is why we always go in with the video first, unless there's something strange about it. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, I do agree. I mean, you know, you may get varying opinions on this, uh, especially from some attendings that trained pre-video laryngoscope, but I agree with, uh, with Derek that generally speaking, if you have the time uh, to get the video, it's the way to go. I'm curious, did you guys intimate with video the, the patient who was... Uh, bleeding. Yeah, that's a good question because I talked about yeah. this uh, with my excellent attending at Valley, actually. She asked me what my plan was, and yeah. I said at the time when we were about to intubate, there was, she. he was between ep episodes of hematemesis. He had already thrown up probably about a liter I saw in the canister. Yeah. So I said, I we know absolutely nothing about this patient's airway. We haven't had time to look this patient up at all. I'm most comfortable just going in with video first just to make sure we get this airway, especially since he's not actively bleeding right mm -hmm. now of course that all changed when we were about to induce and he threw up another liter of blood oh my God. we had to stick two yank hours in the mouth but after that i said you know what um i want to go in with glide first mm. and if i take one look and it's impossible i want to have a mac 3 right there ready just in case i can't see anything with the video so uh we were diligent in making sure that not only did we have a video uh glide scope that was set up ready to go with a special hyperangulated glide scope stylet in the mm -hmm. tube already but we also had a mac blade a mac 3 blade at the bedside right on the patient's pillow as well as a separate tube that was styletted differently in how you would normally stylet a tube uh, that you were playing on intubating with under direct laryngoscopy awesome yeah i think that's a huge uh point that like in anesthesia, it's all about plan A, plan B, plan C, plan Z. <laughs> you really want to have as many plans available uh, as possible. So had this been a difficult airway, it's not fun for Derek to, you know, ask the ICU nurse to, hey, can you grab a Mac 3? They don't really know what that is. Yeah. So it's really up to, up to you and your team uh, and hopefully the anesthesia techs, if you have them available, to have all of your airway equipment prepared and available. Um, so having multiple, you know, different ways to secure the airway is always a good idea. Yeah, and I think as kind of a pearl too, because I have seen this go wrong, is when you put the GlideScope stylet inside the tube itself without any lube, sometimes it's, it's very prone to sticking in the tube. And I have, I remember being a CA2 and being called to a code and the CA1 was holding the airway pager, and she very expertly intubated the patient. But then I remember being at bedside and trying to pull the stylet out, and this is where I kind of learned the lesson the hard way. She had gotten the tube in the right place, and it was just extraordinarily hard to pull the stylet out. 
In that case, we were able to finally get the stylet out and the airway was secured. But I have heard of other situations where in pulling the stylet out, somehow in the process of that, you lose your view or the tube goes into the wrong place or you accidentally intubate the esophagus or something like that. Mm -hmm. So it's, I think it's always like a very simple maneuver just to lubricate the stylet this way. When you get, you do all the hard work, you get the tube in the right place. When the stylet comes out, it's nice and smooth and you intubate the patient. Totally agree. And just to, just to add to that, another pro tip for the glide, um, especially when you have a like novice user pulling the stylet for you, again, using the scenario of like a bedside ICU nurse who doesn't intubate or see that many, participate in that many intubations, I always tell people to pull the stylet towards the feet. So what they're doing it with that, the stylet is very rigid with the glide, and essentially they're using the curvature of the stylet to slide the stylet out of the tube. You should just play with this in the OR someday when you're using a glide, just to show how, how simple it is when you're pulling the stylet down and out rather than up and out. Hopefully that makes sense. It's kind of hard to describe. Yeah, I think that's verbally. A, that's great. Yeah, it's always nice if, if you're sitting in a long case and you've got airway equipment out. It's yeah. never harmful to just take some equipment out and start playing with it and seeing, getting familiar, familiarizing yourself with it and seeing how it feels. This way, mm -hmm. when you actually need it in an emergent situation, you know very well what its capabilities are and you know the tactile feeling of what it feels to do these things. Mm -hmm. One other thing that uh, I would like to mention in airway is the positioning of the patient as well. Just like in the OR, you want to optimize the positioning. I mean, I've learned so many, way, so many times the hard way that if you don't optimize the positioning, if you have time beforehand, it can make things so much more difficult. And especially in a stressful situation where everybody's watching you intubate, you need to get this airway. That's the last thing that you want to feel is uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So if there is time, I usually ask them to pull the patient up in the bed towards the head of the bed so the head is closest to me because you don't want to be leaning over, um, bending over, and compromising your view from that standpoint. Um, and then I do make sure that the table height is at the level that I'm comfortable with. And I do make sure the little backboard that comes on the end of the ICU bed is completely off and there's nothing obstructing me, no objects or anything that could block um, the space between the patient and myself. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You, you know, along those lines with positioning, for a lot of your urgent or emergent intubations, the patient is going to be in some degree of respiratory distress. So the other thing to think about with positioning is trying to optimize their respiratory mechanics while you pre-oxygenate them and prepare the, the room for this emergent intubation. So what I mean by that is keep the patient sitting upright yes. if possible yes. to offload the, the diaphragm from the chest and allow them to take as big of breaths as they can. Um, the only time that you know, you'll, you'll make a mistake with this is placing the patient supine too quickly mm -hmm. before you're actually ready to induce and intubate. So for me, the very last move before we push medications will be to move the patient from upright to supine to Absolutely. some degree. Yeah. Those uh, are all really good points. Yeah. So how about IVs? What are you thinking about uh, in terms of I for IVs. Yeah, I think, again, the most valuable resource is going to be the nurse. The nurse is going to be the most familiar with the access situation of the patient. 
and the nurse can tell you whether uh, the IV access is reliable or not. Oftentimes they're kind of just struggling along with some 22 and some edematous limb and they'll <laughs> say, oh yeah, it, it kind of flushes. And in which case you wouldn't be very happy with that in terms of putting the patient to sleep. And other times the patients have almost a jungle of wires and tubing covering their entire body and they, they have so much access, but there's so much tubing connected to infusion pumps that it's hard to know where you can put anything. So this is a situation where I rely on the nurse a lot in terms of what kind of access that I have. And the first question I always ask when I'm thinking about access is what kind of access do we have? And if we were to bolus meds, where would we bolus? And that, I think that's the quickest way to get to a port that you can attach something to and deliver it and it actually gets to the patient. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I, I, I will ask where can I push induction medications, yes. especially in the ICU when you have a patient like Derek said, who's on multiple infusions, the nurse will be able to say, will be able to point you directly to the port <laughs> that's most available mm -hmm. and you'll be able to go from there. Ideally, uh, having a nurse go out and set up a free flowing IV bag with tubing, with tubing is really helpful because then you can bolus medication and not worry about flushing your meds in with a syringe. Um, but obviously that's, that's also an option if push really comes to shove. But if I have the time, I'll have someone set up a free flowing IV bag with tubing so that I can push my induction medication through that. Exactly. Or just ask for, like you said, like a bunch of flushes. I, I think for my last airway at Valley, I asked for flushes and they gave me a whole box <laughs> and I was just Perfect. pushing yeah, <laughs> flush after flush after flush. So that's nice too. You have um, to add that to the ends. Yeah. <laughs> but kind of going along with that, uh, looking at the access, sometimes if you're in the ICU, they're, they're already going to be attached to some drips. And that was the case for my patient. This patient was already hooked up to some norepinephrine. So it's nice to see what kind of pressors that you have, either that uh, are in the room and attached to the patient already, or that maybe you brought, or maybe pharmacy brought as well, just to see what kind of bolus vasoactive medications you might have to help treat the patient after induction. And again, this kind of goes a little bit into our next letter of the mnemonic drugs. But sometimes when you do ask for access, you follow the access back to the infusion pump and you kind of see what infusions they're on too. Yeah. And one last comment too on access is not only do you want an IV, obviously free flowing, but the, the other thing I'll think about in access is whether or not they have an arterial line yeah. and whether or not I should place one before we induce and intubate them. Mm -hmm. So in a situation where the patient is relatively stable, um, sometimes it's, it's the best choice to take more time and place an arterial line before you induce and intubate. And I had a, a scenario actually when I was a CA1 kind of near the end of the year where I had a patient who was, I think, BMI of like 55 or 60, mm. um, pulmonary hypertension oh. uh, in the unit on BiPAP and 100% oxygen. Um, and as you can imagine, getting a non-invasive pressure was really challenging because um, it's just very unreliable. Um, so luckily, one of our other phenomenal CA1s at the time, who's now going to be a future attending shortly, Brett Bame, mm -hmm. rolls in the room 
And uh, as I'm preparing and, and getting everything ready to intubate, he asked, hey, can I help throw in an A-line? I said, yes, please, that would be amazing. So Brett puts in an A-line, we induce, and right after induction, the cuff pressure shows 40 over 20, but the A-line pressure was like 100 over 60. Yeah. And it was perfectly leveled uh, and transducing appropriately. So had we not had the A-line pressure, this guy would have gotten way more phenylephrine than was necessary. Um, So just keeping in mind that arterial access should also be kind of in the back of your mind if necessary. Yeah, that's going along with that. That's a scary patient to have. I mean, pulmonary hypertension, you don't know how much pulmonary hypertension oftentimes. BMI that's really high can lead to very difficult access. Sometimes there are certain limbs that you can't use with the blood pressure cuff and you're kind of trying to get a blood pressure around the ankle, which is not (laughs) ideal. So these are all situations, especially if you have time, why not just throw in an awake art line? And I think that was the right decision. I mean, there's so many different factors that could have gone wrong. They could have had insane pulmonary hypertension. You could have had right heart failure. You could have just not known the pressure. So yeah, yeah. what a a way to have help in the room. Again, utilizing your resources and getting the monitoring that you need. Yeah, and you know, exactly. I mean, the thing about that situation is, okay, so I know he's on a lot of respiratory support uh, and he's gonna need a lot when we intubate him, but he was satting 100%. He was stable. He could still talk through the BiPAP mask. So it's that scenario where you say, okay, there is no rush to this. We're going to do it right the first time. We're going to set everything up for success. Yeah. So I think the next one will be D for drugs. Yes. Which I, you know, we can, we can chat about a little bit, but maybe leave the specifics of, of sort of drug dosage and drug choice for uh, a later time. But maybe we can just talk briefly on... Uh, you know, what drugs you usually use for an out-of-OR airway. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, If I have time and I have medications, um, I always think of a medication I can use to induce anesthesia with so they become unconscious and they don't remember this traumatic event. Um, So I always think of Etomidate is always the classic medication Mm -hmm. uh, that is classically the most hemodynamically stable, so they say, uh, induction agent as well. There's always the anesthesiologist's best friend, which is propofol, and it can never hurt to bring a little bit of propofol. But of course, with propofol, although it is such a nice, clean drug, um, there is always more potential for hypotension after induction with propofol, which is why I would say, especially for other specialties, I feel like they are most comfortable if they do have to induce a patient using Atomidate. Mm-hmm. The next agent that I think of is a paralytic. It can either be rocuronium or succinylcholine. Mm -hmm. Um, Oftentimes, these emergent airways are not appropriately nicely MPO like we're used to in the OR. (laughs) So you do have to do a rapid sequence induction to minimize the chance of aspiration or someone vomiting Mm -hmm. on induction. Um, And then the next thing are things that I would think about to support the patient after induction. So again, we kind of touched upon this earlier, some more vasoactive drugs. If it's in, most often times patients will become hypotensive after induction um, because not only are the, are the drugs um, causing that effect with decreasing your SVR to some extent and creating hypotension from that standpoint, but they're also taking away the sympathetic stimulus that oftentimes is keeping these patients chugging along. So 
a lot of times they can tank even if you're using just a little bit of vitamidate which is supposed to be hemodynamically stabilizing so it's always nice to have at least some phenylephrine some ephedrine oftentimes if you can find a dilute epi stick lying around that can save you oftentimes but again if it's also very important to keep the patient from becoming too hypertensive there's always some downers you can think of having you can have clavidipine you can have um, here we I think we mostly use clavidipines occasionally nipride as well you can always have those in bolus syringes or ready mm -hmm. to use in an infusion but the most most common scenario hemodynamically is a little bit of hypotension yeah agreed and I would say one agent to add to your arsenal for induction uh, is ketamine. Yes. You can sometimes do uh, just a pure ketamine induction. I've only done that a handful of times because, to be honest, uh, an induction dose of ketamine leaves you with a very, uh, like, hyper-salivary patient, <laughs> which can be hard to, like, secure the tube and everything. So I only use that a handful of times. But Atomidate, I definitely use a lot, and Propofol a fair amount, depending on how stable the patient is um so I, I think going to the last s for me out of or airways i think of two things s is special so is there anything special about this patient that uh might make me choose my plan uh slightly differently so for example if the patient is chronically ill and has been bed bound for the last five years I'm not going to use succinylcholine as yes. the paralytic agent. Um, but, uh, um, you know, keeping those things in mind, like, like pulmonary hypertension, like this uh, scenario I described a few minutes ago, you definitely would want to make sure you have an epi stick available for that patient uh, because you, if you run into any issues, um, being able to support the right ventricle is really important. Um, and then the second S is sedation. So, you know, it's all well and good to point to pat yourself on the back and say we got the tube in, but um, your bolus of anesthesia to induce the patient is only going to last a few minutes. So it's it's really important to be having in the back of your mind how are we going to keep this patient comfortable after we induce and intubate them. Yeah, I completely agree. And again, just like when you're setting up your room in the morning, the S is kind of a catch-all. So you can kind of go over the rest of your MS made and see if there's anything else that you might need. So sometimes if I think it's going to be a little tough, I'll make sure that I have an LMA there just in case we can't get any view. Mm -hmm. If it's someone that you might think you have to do an awake airway in, you might want to bring a fiber optic scope as well. This is just kind of a chance to do a little double check and see if there's any other special equipment that you might need. Yeah. And so I will say, you know, when I'm prepping the room, I use MS maids. Before I induce the patient, I'll do an anesthesia timeout using my MS maids mnemonic. Mm -hmm. So it's nice. I mean, this is all, you know, if you have the time to do it, obviously. Yeah, yeah. There, sometimes it's you just have to rush in and do your best. But uh, when, when you have the time, make sure that you're covering all these bases. I think that's the, the safest way to prepare and to make a very challenging, scary, unfamiliar situation more familiar for you. Yeah, and it's great if, again, if you have time during the timeout too, when you're checking yourself, to make sure that everybody else in the room is also on the same page. What I like to do is kind of describe how things are gonna go, mm -hmm. almost come up with a game plan so people know what's gonna happen. I'll say, oh, we're gonna push the induction drugs through here. Mm -hmm. If someone is helping me, like the RT, I'll say, this is what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna take a look. I'm going to ask for the tube at some point. I'm going to ask you to pull the stylet. 
And before you give any breaths, make sure the cuff is inflated and then you can start back masking the patient. So I think even prompting other people in the room who are not necessarily directly involved in getting the airway, letting them know what to expect is also huge too because these situations tend to be very anxiety provoking and some people tend to feel anxiety and project it very outwardly. So Mm -hmm. giving people an expectation and a game plan for what's going to happen, I think makes the atmosphere and the environment that the emergency airway is happening in uh, a much more calm and peaceful and controlled environment. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. I think my last sort of comment on this is that, you know, throughout the hospital, I have this this kind of theory about how I view anesthesia. We're kind of like the caped crusader of the hospital. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. So, you know, when any crisis hits, people are like, oh, thank God, anesthesia is here. Uh-huh. So... What I would really think about and focus on is just remember that you are the provider that is going to bring the whole temperature of the room down a notch. Mm-hmm. Everyone will be kind of freaking out a little bit. The energy levels may be high. There's going to be a, a high degree of concern. I would just encourage you to be the one that says, okay, everybody, let's take a deep breath and we'll, we'll just proceed down this path. We'll do it the right way. Um, when you're able to do that, you can really gain control of the room and have a much smoother experience with, uh, with your intubation. Yeah. So I think that brings us to the end of our podcast here. Yeah. Uh, we did just record a podcast <laughs> right before this, but I know Joe is a man of many interests. He's <laughs> what I call like a renaissance man. So I still want to ask you the question, what are you interested in? What are you hoping to mm. like do in on a personal level over the rest of the year? Ooh, okay. Um, well, over the rest of the year, I think, you know, I, I think there's still a lot of fish to fry from the perspective of making improvements for yeah. the residency. So there are a few things that we're kind of working on from that chiefing perspective. For sure. But honestly, to not, uh, you know, bore you with business all day, <laughs> um, I think... Uh, Sam and I are moving actually at the end of the month. Um, so I've been kind of excited about that, thinking about how we're going to kind of piece together our new place. We have a, uh, we're upgrading from a studio loft to a one bed with an extra studio. So there's some, there's some really nice space there and we're going to kind of play with it. Nice. Um, I was telling Derek before we got on the podcast today that I just bought a, a really nice sound bar off our stanford university craigslist for like a couple bucks so i'm pretty excited about that yeah that's one of those things that you buy and you didn't know you were missing and then now you have it and now you can never go back to listening the audio to the audio that comes from the tv (laughs) i'm spoiled now yeah what about you derek any any uh, additions to our earlier conversation yeah, absolutely I, I feel like our listeners are gonna start thinking this podcast is almost like a therapy session for me and they're probably gonna learn a lot of things that they necessarily <laughs> didn't need to know but next week i'm going to going back home to indiana i'm originally born and raised in indiana nice. one of my dear friends is having a wedding there so it'll be nice to go home yeah. spend a little time um in hoosierville and just spend some time with family see some friends really yeah. excited about that yeah so, yeah Finally, a vacation. It's going to be nice. You deserve it. <laughs> you deserve it. Derek's been coming off a, a month of like Q2, Q3 call. So he's been, he's been working pretty hard. Yeah. 
And we're very grateful for him. <laughs> <laughs> well, that right, brings us friend. to the actual end of the podcast. Um, so again, thanks so much for listening. Uh, I hope this was helpful. And I will see you hopefully in the ORs or uh, at Stanford for all of you CA1s or anybody else who is affiliated with the residency program. I'll see you out there. Thanks. See you later, guys.